Welcome to the Five By, the Quattro Weekly podcast of rapid fire board game reviews. In this episode, we hear a classic review of Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde from Mason. I'm in Wonderland playing Paint the Roses. Meeple Lady reviews Project L. And Jose gives us the true meaning of rapid fire board game review with Bullet Heart. But first, John's in space with First Rat. Old stories tell of a moon made out of cheese. Naturally, you and your rat friends are curious about this delectable description and have long yearned to travel there and feast on the moon's cheesy goodness. To that end, the teams have assembled to gather the required resources to make this dream a reality. In First Rat, from designers Gabriel Auxelio and Virginio Gili, players guide their rats through a junkyard to gain resources to build rocket parts in a race to put the first rat on the moon. On their turn, players use their two starting rats to move along a winding track through a junkyard and collect resources. Rats move in two ways. You can move one rat one to five spaces along the track, or you can move two, three, or four rats up to three spaces each. The trick is that they must land on spaces that are of the same color. If you land on a space that has other players' rats, you have to pay those players one cheese each. If you don't pay, you give them cheese from the supply, and you must take a moldy cheese token that is worth negative two points. Rats that you've moved on your turn collect resources from the spaces they end up on. The resources in First Rat are all hilariously themed. Naturally, there's cheese, but there's also calculators, vinegar, and baking soda. You know, rocket materials. At the end of their turn, players can exchange these resources to build rocket parts and score victory points. Contributing to the cheese supply also scores you some victory points, which is a nice way to get on the board with some sharp cutesy points. Anytime players create a rocket piece or meet any of the scoring criteria on the board, they place one of their 10 player cubes on the spaces of the corresponding score tracks. Point values decrease further down the score tracks, making it a race to collect as many points possible in the most efficient way possible. The game ends when someone has made their four rats into astronauts. Anytime a rat reaches the end of the track, they become astronauts and are placed onto, you guessed it, the astronaut scoring track, effectively removing that piece from the game. Once any player has created their fourth astronaut, the game ends at the end of that round. The game can also end when any player places their eighth scoring cube on the board. In this case, the game ends after the next round. First rat is all about tracks. The rats you move are on tracks, collecting resources. The points are all on tracks. There's also a light string track that runs parallel to the main junkyard track. This track lets you collect an additional resource on every space that's behind your light bulb marker because, of course, your rat workers can collect more resources if their workspaces are illuminated. You can advance your light bulb marker by collecting light bulbs. There's a circular burrow track that rewards players with additional rat workers, special powers, and yes, even more points. And while the rats in the junkyard track are moving in one direction, there are shortcuts you can take to move around faster. There's also vendors on the board that in exchange for cheese will sell you powerful abilities and boosts. Don't want to pay? That's cool. Just go ahead and steal the power-up. Just know that doing so will return that rat to the beginning of the junkyard track, which hey, that might not be the worst thing in the world. In First Rat, you're constantly thinking about the spaces you need to reach in order to nab the resources that will get you the best return in victory points. You're always trying to puzzle out how to get your rats into position to get better results. Whether to invest in advancing on the light string or burrow tracks instead of collecting resources is a choice you're going to have to make throughout the game. And all of this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Other players are sipping up the tracks and making their own moves. 
It's definitely one of those games where the tempo changes with every play. I find myself watching other players and trying to suss out how fast they will do the thing I'm trying to do, watching them to see if they are stealing items and returning to the beginning of the junkyard or just rushing their rats to the end of the track and hastening the end of the game. It's a hunk of gameplay that I find very tasty. If you're an avid listener, first of all, thank you. Secondly, you probably know that I tend to enjoy games in which racing against other players and not just a set number of rounds. The game includes a standard board on one side with printed score tracks and resource spaces, which is great for a first play. On the reverse side of the board, you'll find the blank junkyard track and mostly blank score tracks that can be populated with random tiles to change up the board's layout from game to game. I'm always happy when I find a good, light, medium weight Euro game with a fun theme, especially when it strays from the overdone and tired themes of colonization or trading in the Mediterranean. I really love the whole idea of rats running around the junkyard, collecting items, and building a rocket. The game drips with theme and you get the idea that the designers and everyone else involved in the process had a lot of fun playing with the theme. Dennis Lohausen's art is fun and cartoony, like something out of an 80s or 90s Don Bluth animated film. I think for future players I might stay away from playing First Rat at its full player count of 5 players. There's quite a bit of downtime between turns in my experience. Uh, there's also a solo mode which I found enjoyable. So you might be interested in First Rat after hearing my thoughts on it. If you do happen to play it, let me know what you think. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Mystery Rummy, Jekyll and Hyde. I'm a big fan of small box card games, as you well know, and the Mystery Rummy series inhabits one of my favorite parts of hobby games, new twists on a familiar mechanic. A big reason designer Mike Fitzgerald is one of my favorites is that new twist on an old mechanic is in a lot of ways his bread and butter as a designer. It also doesn't hurt my love of Mystery Rummy that most of them are about brutal murders or, at the very least, heinous crimes. There's a miserable dearth of truly great horror games out there that aren't Cthulhu or zombies. See Lindsay's segment on the Bloody End from episode 14 for more on this topic. I'll assume that you're at least passingly familiar with the basic concepts of Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 short story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like most Mystery Rummy games, you are attempting to solve a crime. In this version, you're looking into strange happenings in the back streets of Victorian London, somewhat similar to the original Mystery Rummy game, Jack the Ripper. Gameplay, fundamentally, like all Mystery Rummy games, is you drawing, melding, and discarding. If you're not familiar with the idea of melding, I don't really have time to get into how Rummy games work. So pause this, go look it up, and then come back. What sets the Mystery Rummies, and Jekyll and Hyde in particular, apart are some of the subtle tweaks that Fitzgerald makes with special cards that allow you to take some kind of action that you'd never be able to take in a traditional rummy game. In Jekyll and Hyde, those cards come in a few different flavors. When you play In the Lab, face up in front of you, you, know, you can search the discard pile, which is a commonality in almost every version, uh, here the discard pile is called London, or flip over the top three cards of the case file, which is just the draw deck. Either way, you take one card, but it has to match whichever face of the Jekyll and Hyde card is currently showing. But Mason, what is the Jekyll and Hyde card, you ask? Well, at the beginning of the game, there's a two-sided card sitting face-up on the table. One side says Dr. Jekyll, and the other says Mr. Hyde. The most gruesome twist in this version of Mystery Rummy is that you can only meld sets from your hand if they match whichever side of the Jekyll and Hyde card is currently face-up. So I might have a beautiful handful of Hyde cards ready to meld, but unless I can draw the potion card and flip the good doctor face down, I'll never be able to play them. All Rummy games at some level are about hand management with some push-your-luck. Of course you still want to go out first, uh, if you're unclear about going out in rummy games, again, please just Google it, because it means your opponent has to take negative points for everything in their hand, but you also want to hold on to your melds as long as possible. Secrets are power in Jekyll and Hyde. 
For me, that's a lot of what makes this particular version work so well as two-player, though in general I will say that most of them, with the possible exception of Al Capone, are probably best at two-player anyway. Mike Fitzgerald likes, and I know this because I've heard him say it multiple times, to have an element in the game that's something akin to shooting the moon in hearts. A risky, winner-take-all strategy that players are slightly afraid to gamble on using, and it only becomes a viable option in a small percentage of plays. In Jekyll and Hyde, there are really two. Transformation and the shutout. When you shut out, you're able to go out with all of your melds matching the face-up side of the Jekyll and Hyde card. In every game, all players that have melds that match the face-up card score double. But in a shutout, your opponent scores nothing and you score normally. A lot of games of Jekyll and Hyde end with the draw deck running out, which is a rarity in other Mystery Rummy titles. I think this is probably because Jekyll and Hyde is explicitly two-player and most of the other games can accommodate three or four. The transformation card allows players to transform any meld or layoff in front of them or their opponent into the opposite identity. Once it's played, it can't be moved or changed or taken back. So timed correctly, you could transform one of your melds, go out, and pull a shutout all at once. It would be incredibly difficult, but it's also absolutely possible, which is really what makes it so dangerous and enticing. Get stuck with transformation in your hand at endgame, it costs you 5 points, plus all of the melds you were hoarding hoping to use it. Box size and quality in all the Mystery Rummy games is perfectly fine, though I have a number of long-term complaints about the cards themselves. I own every Mystery Rummy game, with the exception of Wyatt Earp, which is not actually a Mystery Rummy game, but really it still is, and I don't care for the card quality on any of them. Cards are entirely too stiff, don't bridge shuffle well, and the black edges tend to chip. Especially when compared to the wonderful card quality in Bonnie and Clyde, also a Mystery Rummy game, though not in the Mystery Rummy series. Worth pointing out here, though, that Bonnie and Clyde is out of print, but is an excellent, excellent game, despite the laughably bad graphic design and completely absurd typos that Rio Grande games for some reason left in. If you can pick up a used copy of that, I would highly recommend it. The rest of the Mystery Rummy series is available from a number of different online retailers. Uh, check BoardGamePrices.com before you buy, as no one retailer has every Mystery Rummy game in stock for some reason that I don't really understand. So, who should buy Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde? People who want to play back-to-back -back hands of cards. People who have played Rummy before. People who play a lot of casual two-player games. And people who love games about Victorian murders. I give Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde 3 out of 3 wax-sealed letters only to be opened on the occasion of my untimely death or disappearance under curious circumstance. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. I love puzzle games and co-op games and literature. And when Paint the Roses showed up on Kickstarter with the description, a cooperative puzzle game set in Wonderland, that was pretty much all I needed to know. Designed by Ben Goldman and published in 2022 by North Star Games, Paint the Roses is exactly what it promises to be. A puzzly co-op game set in Lewis Carroll's classic novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. You play gardeners working in the Queen of Hearts' royal gardens. The royal gardeners are characters in the book. When Alice meets them, they're busy painting the roses different colors to appease the Queen of Hearts, who orders them beheaded as soon as she sees them. Just as in the book, your task in Paint the Roses is to fill the royal garden with flowers while avoiding the Queen of Hearts. You do this by laying tiles until the board is full. But I said this was a puzzle game. Each tile shows a rose bush with a flower color and a topiary shape. And each player holds a single card with a combination, like pink and red or hearts and spades. Each turn, you place a tile to try and create the combination on your card. Like if your card showed pink and red, you could take a tile with a pink rose and place it next to a tile with a red rose. Then you put cubes on top of the tile you just placed to show how many matches you made. 
If you put the pink tile next to two red tiles, you place two cubes. Then the rest of the players try and guess what's on your secret card. You aren't allowed to say anything about your card. The number of cubes is the only information you can give. But there's so much more information there. You can look at the places they didn't place a tile and the tiles they didn't take from the drafting area. Comparing the choices that weren't made to the choices that were is often all you need to figure out the secret card. But the biggest boost is that it isn't just the active player who places cubes when a tile is put on the board. Every player does for their own secret card. That means that in a four-player game, you have four opportunities to give clues for each of your turns. And if you can't place a cube, that's still good because it rules out every combination that's there. This is a lot of information to keep track of and Paint the Roses comes with little paper grids where you can mark down what you know about each secret card. I know some hardcore puzzlers are against using paper to work out solutions and if that's you, more power to you, but I take advantage of the grids in Paint the Roses. I find it essential for keeping track of everything, especially with clues coming in over multiple turns. Now, this isn't just a leisurely stroll through a series of deduction puzzles. At the end of every turn, if you guess a card correctly, you move forward on the score track. But the Queen of Hearts also moves forward. She moves faster as the game goes on. And every time you fail to correctly guess a card, she moves a lot faster on that turn. Your goal is to fill the board by placing 16 tiles before the queen catches up with you and says those fateful words off with their heads. If you're experienced with deduction puzzles, you may not find Paint the Roses too difficult, but there are many options to make it more of a challenge. Every time you draw a secret card, you can choose easy, medium, or hard. And the hard cards, while they give you more points, really are difficult. You can remove half the starting tiles, which means you have fewer options when you start and you have to stay ahead of the queen for four more turns. Plus there's an expansion called Escape the Castle, which adds six modules to increase the complexity of the base game. I will say that I've only played Paint the Roses with two people and I believe it would be easier with more players. You have to make at least one guess on every turn and there's quite a penalty for guessing wrong. And with only two players, you don't get nearly as much opportunity to place cubes on other people's turns. There is a mitigating rule in two-player games that lets you skip guessing three times without the penalty. But also, Paint the Roses is described as a cooperative game of logic, deduction, and discussion. And a two-player game mostly omits the discussion part. Just like in, say, Codenames, you can't discuss the clues with the clue giver. And in a two-player game, the clue giver is the only other person. Still, I really enjoy Paint the Roses with two players and look forward to playing it with more. I have many fond memories of whiling away hours with a pencil, a notebook, and the puzzle section of Games Magazine. I also have fond memories of my parents reading to me Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the sequel Through the Looking Glass, and then reading them myself when I was old enough. Paint the Roses evokes both of those sets of memories in such a charming way. The components are all well-made, the tiles are chunky and feel good in your hand, and the art by Jackie Davis is lovely. The art doesn't much resemble the original John Tenniel illustrations, which is too bad, but I assume must be for copyright or trademark reasons. But still, this game just feels good. It felt like a happy memory from my first play. And that's Paint the Roses. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other puzzly co-op games set in classic fiction. Then I really want to hear from you. I love puzzles. And when I came across a Tetris-inspired board game that came in a sleek black box this past spring, I was intrigued. 
When I played it for the first time and found out that it was also an engine builder, I immediately wanted a copy of it. Project L, which came out in 2020, is published by Borcubator and designed by Mikhail Mikes, Jan Sukal, and Adam Spinella. It plays one to four people in about 20 to 40 minutes. It's a Tetris-inspired engine builder puzzle. You start the game with two pieces, and as you complete more puzzles, you receive more pieces, allowing you to build more complicated puzzles for more victory points as the game goes on. There are a couple expansions that came out with a Kickstarter that sell for a ridiculous amount of money, but I think the base game by itself is very solid, and it's available online for a reasonable price. The game is easy to teach since it incorporates elements of Tetris that many are familiar with and plays fairly quickly. It comes in a sleek black box with minimal art, just the word project overlaid on top of a giant L. The game itself is equally minimalist. Thick recessed puzzle cards, one with black backing and double the amount with the white backing, and lots of plastic polyomino pieces in a variety of shapes and colors. And not like flimsy see-through pieces, but good, sturdy, opaque Tetris pieces. There are 10 types of pieces altogether in the base game, which range from a single square to a larger T-shape. They range from level 1 to level 4, with higher levels being bigger and covering more spaces on your puzzle. One small issue I have is that the two oranges, an orange and a dull yellow orange, can look similar, but since it's a shape-based puzzle game, it shouldn't matter too much. I just found myself accidentally grabbing the wrong piece once or twice. Everyone begins the game with one level 1 and one level 2 pieces. On your turn, you take three actions. The first action you can do is take a puzzle card. For the game, there's a market of four white cards face up and four black cards face up. You can take one puzzle card from the market, and then a new card replaces it from the deck. You can also take one card blindly from the top of either deck. The white tiles are helpful in the beginning of the game to increase your supply of pieces. The black cards are the timer for the game. When the black deck runs out, the round finishes out, and everyone gets one last turn after that. Another action you can do is take a level 1 piece, the smallest yellow square. A third action is upgrading a piece. This is where the levels of the pieces come into play. You can upgrade your piece one level up. When you go up to level 3 and level 4, there are a few options you can take within this level. A fourth action you can do is place one puzzle piece onto one puzzle card. Most cards require a couple different pieces to complete the puzzle. The last action you can do is take a master action. This enables you to place exactly one puzzle piece onto all the puzzle cards that you have in front of you. This action is so strong that you can only do it once per turn. It's an efficient way to get your pieces out onto the puzzles if you have more than one puzzle in front of you. Each of these can be done in any combination during the three actions you get on your turn, except the master action. Players get a paper playmat in front of them that has all these actions written down so it's easy to remember them. You also have four slots on the top of the playmat to remind you that you can only hold on to four puzzle cards at a time. Players take their turns taking three actions until the black deck runs out. After the end game is triggered, you all have one final round, and then a final actions round where you can play leftover pieces into your puzzle cards. But for each piece you place, you subtract one point from the card's value for end game scoring. Players then calculate the victory points on all the puzzle cards they've completed, and the player with the most points wins the game. If it's a tie, the player with the most puzzles completed wins. If there's still a tie, the player with the most leftover pieces wins. And if there really is still a tie, then it's a shared victory. 
there isn't much interaction in Project L since you're so focused on your puzzles and engine, which is perfect for most of my gaming groups. We often play puzzle games like Number 9 or Pasture as a filler or end of night game, and Project L fits right in with that bunch, though this feels a little bit more gamey than those other games. Placing all those colorful pieces to create a mosaic puzzle feels just so satisfying, as does the stack of puzzle cards you accumulate for victory points. And while some might say it just gets a little repetitive at the end, to me the game is so short and I feel like that's just an indicator that it's going to end very soon. I'd still be curious to see how the expansion add to it, so if you've played it, let me know on the socials. And that's Project L. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. What is you, baby booze? This is Jose, and I have another game that's come across my radar. But first, I have a confession to make. And this may shake you to your very core, but I also enjoy playing video games. I've played video games since I was a young kid, and even though I don't play video games as much as I used to, it's kind of nice to find a board game that scratches the same edge some of those old games that I really enjoy. Bullet Heart is a 1-4 player abstract puzzle game designed by Joshua Van Leningham, has art by Collateral Damage Studios, and is published by Level 99 Games. In Bullet Heart, you take the role of one of eight unique heroines as they use their abilities to stop the forces of evil, or sometimes they have to stop each other. The designer noted that the game is heavily inspired by the cut-em-up genre of games, and once I realized the designer wasn't talking about me, but about those video games where you play as colorful characters that try to survive through waves of bullets that can sometimes fill up an entire screen, I realized that I was going to be in for a pretty fast-paced game that's going to be very challenging. Bullet Heart can be played either competitively or cooperatively, but I'm going to be focusing on the competitive free-for-all mode. Each player is going to get a player board, a character with their health tracker and an explanation of their abilities, an ability board, and a small deck of cards. They're also going to receive a bag, and you're going to grab a handful of random tokens to fill your bag. There's no set turn order in Bullet Heart. The game is played simultaneously over three-minute rounds. Your primary action in the game is going to be taking one of those tokens from your bag and placing it onto your player board in the appropriately colored space. You'll be attempting to maneuver these tokens on your player board into specific patterns in order to activate your cards so that you can clear them off your board. Clear tokens are then set aside, but if any token manages to reach the bottom of your board, then you take damage. At the end of three minutes, if you haven't managed to empty your bag, the only action available to you is to take those tokens one by one and add them to your player board and just hope that it doesn't knock you out of the game. During the cleanup step, you're going to take some new tokens into your bag, but you're also going to send all those tokens that you cleared and send them right over to your opponent. But you don't get away scot-free, since the person sitting next to you also sends their tokens and they go straight into your bag. Initially, I walked into this game with some hesitation for a couple different reasons. First off was the theme. The theme itself almost turned me off, and I have to preface this by saying, I really like level 99 games. They have created a couple of really interesting worlds, and I love a lot of the games they've made. I really enjoy Battlecon and the world of Endines. That's probably their most well-known world. They have a handful of games in that universe. Uh, they also have the Millennium Verse, where you can play a card game based on a card game based on a card game. But this world 
dubbed Cycle 617 is heavily anime-inspired, and when I heard that all the characters in the game are women, I was very concerned that it was going to be full of just really questionable art that I'm not going to feel comfortable with. But I was actually pleasantly surprised when I actually saw the character designs in the game. The character designs don't really lean into the heavily sexualized fanservice-y designs that kind of accompany this kind of theme at times, and they do a good job of giving each heroine a unique personality, both with their design and their power sets. Granted, there's not a lot of art in the game, pretty much just your player board in the back of a small deck of cards, but the art that's in this game doesn't make me ashamed to pull it out in public. Another reason why this game almost didn't make it to my tables is the real-time element. These games can be really hit and miss with me, but luckily not every mode is going to be timed. You forgo the timer when you play in teams, and you also don't use it when you're playing cooperatively against one of the souped-up bosses. Every time I've taught the game to new people, we actually played the first round of the game without the three-minute time limit, and it really helps people grasp the game without feeling that extra pressure. And then we move into incorporating the time limit into subsequent rounds. That being said, the game is also really easy to kind of pick up and play. After that first round, people have a pretty good understanding of how the rest of the game is going to manage, and the game also has a really nice intensity ramp, where the first couple of rounds are generally pretty stress-free, but once you get into rounds two and three, and beyond that, you start really feeling the pressure. So it eases you into it instead of just being really intense from the very beginning. Competitive mode feels like you're playing a board game version of competitive Tetris or a match-through puzzle game, but cooperative mode sets you up against a souped-up version of one of the heroines, and each heroine plays differently. They each have a separate AI deck, so this game has a ton of replay value between the different heroines you can play, the different heroines you can go up against, the different game modes. There's a lot to play with in this box. Speaking of the box, the components are pretty solid. Decent cardboard tokens, large player boards that the pieces fit well on, but if you really enjoy the game, you can buy an upgrade kit that has thick wooden tokens. And at the time of recording this, its sequel, Bullet Star, has just released, which brings eight new heroines to the table and allows up to eight players to play if you have both base sets. I haven't had time to play Bullet Star yet, but if you're into fast-paced puzzle games and don't mind the stress of timed rounds, Bullet Heart is a game that you definitely need to try. Once again, my name's Jose, and you can find me on Twitter at Owlazors. That's O-W-L-A-Z-O-R-S. Or you can find me on Instagram at Sir Bearsworth. Stop on by and say hi. Let me know what you've been playing. You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 bygames. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. Thank you.